And we'll seek God's face together in a word of prayer. We'll call upon the Lord's name again. Our brother Dan's mentioned the prayer request for Sister Lynn Kirsch. Again, not so well, hasn't been so well in the last number of weeks now. And do again continue to pray for her sister, that God will bless her and strengthen her. Others, you're sick. Again, there are various illnesses across uh, the church. Our brother Jim's not so well. And others, again, uh, not well in the house of God. Uh, can't be here today. So keep, again, the congregation in prayer going forward. Also, please remember uh, the Reverend Andy Foster and his wife in Penticton. Mrs. Foster's mother passed away yesterday uh, over in London, Ireland. So she's over there at the present time with the family. Uh, so please keep the Fosters and Penticton in your prayers also today. Let's call upon the Lord again for his, for his grace. Eternal God and Father, we come before thee in Christ's name. And we thank you, O Lord, for every bountiful blessing you've given to us in Christ. You have shard us with your mercies. Dear Father, we were those who in nature and practice were rebels against God. We turned our back against thee, and we shook our face, as it were, in your face. And we realize, O Lord, that we are those who, again, were determined to rebel against our God. But you showed us such patience and kindness, your long-suffering toward us, and not willing that we would perish, but that in your time we'd come to faith in Christ Jesus. And so we come as a thankful band of believers today, mindful again of your mercy toward us in Christ, that you've saved us by your grace, and we now come as the children of God, saved, justified, forgiven, adopted into the family of God, heirs and joint heirs with Christ Jesus. Dear Father, help us to rejoice and be thankful in these things today that we'd be glad of your goodness, that we would worship thy name, O God, your alone are worthy of our praise. Help us, O God, to give ourselves fully to the honour and glory of your name. Bless this gathering. We are mindful of those who cannot be here today, those who are sick and laid aside. Touch them, O God, we pray. Strengthen them in body and soul. And again, particularly, we do think of Lynn today. We realise, O God, the nature of her illness, and we pray that you would I just touch her and encourage her at this time. Give wisdom to those who are attending to your care. And strengthen her, we pray. If she's able to watch on and listen in, may the word of God be a blessing to her soul today. And may she be encouraged in the things of God. Remember also, Mrs. Foster, in the passing of her mother, Andy and the children and the whole family circle, we pray again your kindness and your grace toward them in time of grief. Thank you for a, a woman who had a testimony of saving grace. We walk with God. We bless you, God, for the legacy that leaves. And we pray that you'd continue with the family circle, those who don't know thee. Save them, O God, even in these times as they consider, again, their own latter end. And we think, dear Father, particularly of, of Andy's children, we pray you'd work in their hearts. Draw them to yourself, we pray, that they would have the faith of their grandmother and come to know and love the Saviour. Dear God, we look to thee today. We need thee. Bless our hearts. Give us an outpouring of the Spirit of God. Help us, O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, please turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Acts 17. Acts chapter 17. We're going to read uh, this section here of Paul's sermon on Mars Hill to the Areopagus. Again, he's been in this place. He's taught Christ and the resurrection. And there are those, again, who are curious to know more about the teaching of the Apostle. 
And so Acts 17, verse 22, the word of God says, Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I find an altar with this, this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship him, declare I unto you, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worship with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the God is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's desire, device. And the times of his ignorance God winked at. But now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, Whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. We'll end the reading there. May God again be pleased to bless his word to your hearts today. Today, in considering again the nature of God and his, and his being, we're looking at the subject of what's known as God's aseity. God's aseity. It is, again, the word that's before you here is again drawn from a Latin term. And it has the idea, it's two words put together, the word a and the word say. And it has this idea of coming from self. From self. And so when we think of God's aseity, we're describing God as being uncaused. That idea that he is self-sufficient, self-contained. He is a God that's not created by another power or force. He alone is God, self-sufficient, the uncaused God. Connected to that, then, is the thought of God's independence. And we see both of these thoughts here in Acts chapter 17. It's perhaps the simplest of the texts that deal with this particular subject. And you see here down in the verse number 24, God that made the world and all things therein, Seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything. It's a definition there of what does it mean for God to be self-sufficient. It says that he does not depend on anything else. Entirely self-sufficient. Of course, we have to look at this, at least to some degree, in ways that we can comprehend. And so to do that, we can often think of God's self-sufficiency in relationship to the work of creation. And so when you think of God's aseity, God's a being, you think of this in terms of, let's put it this way, before, before creation. What is true of God before creation? Well, you go back to Exodus chapter 3. And you see again, it's God reveals himself to Moses, Exodus chapter 3. You get some idea of what we can say of God before creation. Exodus chapter 3. God's appearing to Moses on, in the bush. In verse 14, sorry, it says, 
And God said unto Moses, again the question is, what is his name? What shall I say unto them? God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. I guess it's an unusual name, of course, in our own thoughts. But when you think of the naming issue in the Old Testament particularly, we see the significance of names and God reveals himself in his name. And as he gives this name to Moses, he takes this idea of the I am, the eternal, ever-present tense. Not a God that was or will be, though those things are true, but a God that can simply be said to be I am. Always present, ever-present. And the language that's used here is again describing God's self-sufficiency. He does not depend upon anything else or anyone else for his being. He simply is. God is the eternal, ever-present I am. And then turn across to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, we saw this text in terms of our description of God as spirit. What does it mean that God is spirit? It means that he's living. We thought about the animacy of God as spirit. And here in John 5, 26... For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. I'm not going back over the ground uh, regarding how that describes the interpersonal relationships of the Trinity, but just simply note the terms life in himself. That is not true of any other being. It's not true of you. It's not true of any created being. Life comes from somewhere else. You think of Adam. God breathed. He became a living soul. His life is given to him by God. But of God alone can it be said that he had life in himself. God who is self-contained in that aspect. Self-satisfied in need of nothing. Again, it's often said, and rightly so, that creation does not come out of God's necessity. He does not need creation. He's self-sufficient and was, again, in all eternity, self-sufficient, self-content, self-contained. The immortal, inexhaustible, indestructible life of God. In him is life, a life that does not diminish or deplete. You know, we find ourselves, we decay. We are corruptible. God is incorruptible. His life is indestructible. Again, 1 Timothy 6, of God alone, can be said, he hath life Immortal life, life, immortality. It's true of God and God alone. And so you, you know this concept and this language. So before creation, God is self-contained, self-sufficient, gloriously satisfied and content in the interpersonal relationships of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But what about creation then? What about God's being at creation? Well, we understand, of course, that creation is formed by God. Again, you have that language. Again, our text for today, Acts chapter 17, verse, 20, uh, verse 24. God that made the world and all things therein, but is not worshipped as though he needed anything. So the creation is not because God was dependent upon man's worship or service. God forms creation for his own glory, for his own purpose, 
And some of the questions of why did God make creation, we can simply come back to that truth. He did it for his own glory. How we understand that, how we can tease out all the precise meanings, well, in some ways you can't. We simply rest in the fact that God made this creation for his own glory. He is dependent upon nothing, but he gave life to all. You look back at Jeremiah now, please turn to Jeremiah chapter 10. I'm just kind of building the the picture here and the, the setting of this. So creation is formed by God, and yet God still exists outside of creation. He doesn't become dependent upon creation in creation. He is still the self-sufficient God, even after creation. And so Jeremiah chapter 10, look at the verse number 14 and following. Every man is brutish in his knowledge. Every founder is confounded by the graven image. For as molten image is falsehood, and there is no breath in them, they are vanity and the work of errors. In the time of their visitation, they shall perish I wonder, did Paul have this text in mind in Acts chapter 17? This man, he was so proficient in the Old Testament scriptures, did he understand the nature of the idolatry in Athens in light of just this described in Jeremiah chapter 10? But then look at the contrast. Verse 16, the portion of Jacob is not like them. So he's describing the idols. They are made by man's hands. They have a founder, verse 14. The idols are made by man, but Jacob's portion, the living God, is not like them. For in the contrast, he is the former of all things. He's the founder. He's the maker of all things. And therefore, he is not dependent upon man for his being like the idols, but he is the one who gives man his being. Israel is the rod of his inheritance The Lord of hosts is his name. And so you see God as the unformed God. And thus the God who in turn forms creation. And yet still is separate from that creation. We don't believe in pantheism. We don't believe that God is in in a sense in, in every tree and in every creature. God is still the transcendent glorious God. He made this world. And yet this world depends upon him. And so that's the thought of after creation. If you have before and that, well, after creation, again, our text in Acts chapter 17, you can turn back there, we're going to stay here now, back in Acts chapter 17, you'll see that the creation that God made is dependent upon God. God is dependent upon nothing, but creation is dependent upon God. Again, you have the language there. Down in verse number 25, he giveth to all life and breath and all things. In him we live and move and have our being, verse number 28. So you see this concept being turned over in your minds. God is sovereign, independent, self-sufficient. He makes creation without creation, therefore, uh, you know, uh, satisfying some dependence in God's. Rather, creation becomes dependent on God. So God does not rest upon creation, but creation rests upon God. These are things that are not surprising to you, but they were surprising to the pagans in Athens. And I suspect they are surprising to the ungodly people around us today. They have no such thoughts of God. 
a God who formed all things and upon whom they depend for their very existence. And so these are some ideas regarding the aseity of God, the independence of God. But in light of this, when we think of this matter, I want to go in two directions here. Because there are two sort of consequent truths that, that have to be asserted and defended and understood today. In light of the interaction between God and creation, there, there are two truths. On the one hand, God is said to be transcendent. He is the transcendent God, separate from, greater than, above all creation. And yet, that, in some people's mind, led to the error of deism. The idea that God was so above creation that all that God did was he made the world and then allowed the world just to continue in its own, if you like, in its own strength, in its own power, and God's away from this world. The Bible doesn't teach that either. And so the transcendent God is not only transcendent, he's also imminent. Not eminent, that's also true, but imminent. He's a God that draws near to creation. He's transcendent and also imminent. That's 2M, sorry. My writing is horrific, I appreciate that. But it's God is transcendent and also imminent. So let's look at this, Acts chapter 17. And you'll see both of these things. Note, first of all, in the transcendence of God, verse 24, God that made the world and all things therein. And we're thinking of God's transcendence, again, two aspects of that. We're thinking of God as maker. He made all things. That immediately puts him above all things. And so as the maker of all things, he is the master of all things. Maker and master, you have that there. Again, the same verse, verse number 24. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth. This is the God that we worship. He is the God that made us. And he is the God, again, who contains and holds all things in his mighty hand. He's a God that is beyond creation. Again, verse 24. He dwelleth not in temples made with hands. It's a statement of God's transcendence. Heaven is God's dwelling place. The earth is his footstool. He's above and beyond the creation that he has made. He does not dwell in that sense in any man-made uh, artifact. He's a God that exists above all of these, these things, altogether greater and above all. And yet at the same time, we see God's imminence here. Look at the second part of verse number 25. And again, asserting God's independence, he then says, Seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. He is the God who might say is the sustainer. He is not so outside creation that he does not sustain creation. He's near creation in that sense. He's the God that comes near to give all life and breath and all things. He sustains the creation that he made. And then verse number 26. And hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth. And here's another assertion here of his, of his imminence. And hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. Here we see God in his imminence. Not only a sustainer but also a sovereign he makes all men, he creates all men, and determines their pathways. 
and the very bounds of their habitation, the borders of your like. The, the plot of land that a man may own is in the sovereign uh, governance of God's. Uh, the nations and their boundaries are in the sovereign purvey of God. He sets the bounds of their habitations. You know, you, you think you had to discuss with, a, with some sort of attorney the, the boundaries of your property. God had that all sorted out before you began to deliberate those issues. God knew and understands where you live, the extent of your boundaries, not just in your own personal property, but in the property of this world in terms of the nations of this world. All of these things are set by the sovereignty of God. And so Paul then continues in that thought as he expands upon that issue by quoting one of their own poets in verse number 28. And he used the term, we are his offspring. The offspring of God. Again, as, as we are, as people, we come from parents. We are dependent upon parents for our existence. And we're also dependent upon parents, again, for our continued safety and security. We are the offspring of our parents. And so in the same sense, we are the offspring of God's. Fully dependent upon our gods, like children to parents. Even the pagans understood that we are also his offspring. And then verse 29, For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the God is like unto gold or silver or stone, driven by art and man's device. We understand that Acts chapter 27, of course, is reasserting the knowledge that men have in their conscience and by creation. They understand there's a, a deity, the unknown God. They have that concern that in all of their idols they may have missed one. And Paul describes their ignorance, their knowledge, and yet their ignorance of what they think they know. And Paul gives definition to these things and points them ultimately to Christ as the one who came to live, to die, and will come to judge all mankind. And so that's kind of just an overview, a very quick overview of the doctrine of God's aseity. He is independent, uncaused, self-sufficient. He is transcendent over creation and yet imminent in creation, working, providing, sustaining creation by his mighty power. Now that's my job done. Okay, it's over to you now. Okay, so you've understood this, I trust. Well, I should say, any questions before we go on to the next part? Okay, a couple of questions. So I'll take George first. It's not a question, but just an observation. God's excited if I'm thinking God's typically, he's outside of cause and effect. It's just an eternity thinking about that. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, so George is making the point again for those watching on that the God, in his ascent, is outside of cause and effect. Because uh, he's uncaused. But in creation, he establishes the rules of cause and effect. So what we see in creation, we see the cause and effect rules. But that itself is proof of the, of the existence of God. The fact that anything is here is proof that something was here. Uh, and so God, having brought about a cause, creation, indicates there must be a cause prior to creation. And we see that in the, in the Bible as the God and Savior uh, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, God and Father. Of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we see that as the, the being of God. So, amen, he's outside of cause and effect, but he puts in place in creation the rules of cause and effect that we see, and even that proves his, his very existence. So, amen, brother. Dan. So, I was just thinking also, like also, like Jehovah's Witnesses, right? Uh, well, they were created by him, 
not true. And there are still worms flying in the face of it. Those two Bibles are saints. Whoever worms, which are not saints at all, Yeah, no, this, this, it's all, this all very valid points, Dan, absolutely. The, the issue of idolatry, remember, idolatry has got two separate issues. A lot of the pagan idolatry in the Old Testament was, again, a, a, an understanding they had that that actual idol was their God. And as they besought that idol or appeased that idol, that idol had the power to then work on their behalf. A lot of the paganism and the idolatry that we see in Catholicism or in other forms is an attempt to seek to worship the God of the Bible through idols. And God's word condemns both. The first commandment, know their gods, and the second commandment, know idols, to worship that God. And so both of those are two different issues. Um, again, the, the Catholics would say we're, that we're worshiping the God of the Bible, but they're doing it in a, in a blasphemous way through idols. Okay, just a comment there. Ken, did you have your hand up? Yeah, no, there was a lot of there's a lot of good comments made. It's, again, Ken's asked the question, "What about the comment of their poets have said?" Again, you think of Paul's understanding in Romans chapter two, man's conscience, Romans one, from creation that men have a knowledge of God, and I think Paul is just very, very wisely. He's drawing again these listeners in. You know, he's addressing his audience. He's not speaking to a Jewish congregation right now. He's speaking to those who were were pagans, and he said to them. I'm telling you and explaining to you things that you know in your conscience, but you don't know properly. There's ignorance here. And he gives explanation to their ignorance. And so he, he says, if you've got the unknown God and your poets have said this, they're expressing truth, but they don't know what that truth actually means. And so he's bringing that truth to, to bear upon their, their minds. Again, we, we've, we can do similar things today. There are, there are evidences in the, in the world. You, you think of the, I know Disney's cr- crazy stuff, but within Disney, there's this understanding, there's, there's, there's higher power. There's powers that work on our behalf, and you go, what you worship ignorantly, I declare unto you. Here's the truth of, of the Bible. So a couple of hands, that's all we have yet to. Yeah, he certainly Sproul had a unique ability regarding his knowledge of philosophy and was able to draw and draw out the errors of philosophy and then point people towards a true God through that. Yeah, absolutely. He had a unique ministry in that regard. Okay, so let me go back to your work. Okay, you have some jobs to do here. You understand this. You're thinking this through in your mind. God is self-sufficient, self-contained, independent. So what? So what's that going to impact your life today? Is it just going to fill your mind and go, yeah, I like that, that's interesting, it's, it's provoking, but what does it actually mean to you? What does it mean in terms of your neighbours? What does it mean in terms of your evangelism? What does it mean in terms of your prayer life? All of these things. So, Daniel, you go first. Um, because God created us, he exists and he created us for something. He created us so that we'd be upright before him and, and follow what he has for us. We didn't cover that, but yes, that's, that's an implication. We, we have to live by his yeah, absolutely. We were created for a purpose. Yeah, it's, it's not, I don't have that time. It's very true. We were created for a purpose. 
you know, so God didn't accidentally create us. He deliberately did it. He didn't need to. So it's always the thought that creation was not, uh, you know, driven by God's necessity. He chose to create. And he did so for his own glory, and we must live for that purpose. So, yeah, anybody else? Paul? Yeah, amen. That's a, that's a good one. So the, the idea of, of this is a comfort to our souls. We're going to come to Romans 10 in the next few weeks. Um, we'll see God's word is near. It's another application of God's imminence. He's, out, outside, he's not outside creation in the sense that we depend upon him, but he also comes alongside in his word, a word that we can understand and then believe and the comfort of God's nearness in that sense from his, from his imminence. Yeah, anything else? Anybody else got something else? Or from, from Acts 17, how does Paul use it in Acts 17? How should we use it and get that? So I was just thinking, and then uh, Jesus said, I am the vine, Yeah, and it's, it's, it's this, this I use the word dependence here. It's, the, it's a recognition in our lives that we are absolutely dependent upon God for everything that we are and everything we have. Our lives, our breath, our gifts, all of these things are absolutely dependent upon God. And that's expressed, of course, particularly in the attitude of humble prayer. We come to God. So George first and then Ken. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, uh, l- let me draw that one, okay? So you've, you've got the idea. So George made the point there that you, you go to a restaurant and nobody's giving thanks to God. And of course, you've got the command in the, in the prayer of the Lord that we're to you know, give us this day our daily bread. We're to recognize in the Eighth Commandment, we're not to steal. Again, the recognition that we work with our hands to, to get what we have. And God gives that to us in, in diligent labor. All those things are, are true in the Word of God. We live in this dependence but look, well, look what Paul does in verse number 30. Uh, verse number uh, 30. A recognition of our dependence is a call to repentance. Having emphasized God's imminence in creation, Paul takes that very concept and brings it to the pagans and says, the times of the ignorance, God winked at. And again, don't misunderstand that. There's an understanding that in the Old Covenant, the Gentile nations did not have the knowledge of God that they now have in the New Covenant. The gospel is going out to all nations. It does not mean that God tolerated pagan idolatry in the Old Testament. That's not what's being said here. It's rather the sense that now in the New Covenant, there is the increasing obligation. They were already obligated. They were very excuse, Romans 1, from creation. They now have the additional obligation of the light of knowledge that comes in the apostolic age as the gospel is preached. But he then says, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. But repent of what? In the context, the issue that he brings to them is their ignorance. Their ignorance in their worship. 
You know, we're, we're coming up this week to Thanksgiving. Somehow or other, this nation has turned Thanksgiving into a secular holiday. So somebody says to you, Happy Thanksgiving. Yeah, why don't you say, ask the question, What are you thankful for by any chance? Uh, I like my family, I'm thankful for my family, I'm thankful for the food I have, I'm thankful for, the, for this and that and all these things, all the good things we have. What's the next question? To whom are you thankful? This idea of being thankful for thankfulness. You know, that's, a, that's secular paganism. It's no less pagan than Athens. They are thankful in ignorance and they do not understand. And even those who say, well, I'm thankful to God. If they don't acknowledge God in Christ Jesus, they're still guilty of pagan ignorance. They've now I thought of a deist being, a, a God who, yes, there's some God out there. But Paul is making the point, there is only one God and his son is Jesus. And he came and lived and died and rose again for your salvation. That's the point that must be made. And so this concept is, it's not abstract. God's aseity is a call to sinners to repent. And acknowledge that God is the one who's given them all things. And in their ignorance, they must repent of their ignorant worship. And so we as God's people must live and lead by example. We must make sure that we are genuinely thankful for all that we have. For all that we have and all that we are. And where we are and all that God has done for us. is all coming from God's kindness. God's common grace. To mankind, he gives the sun and the rain upon the just and the unjust. He's kind even to the unthankful, Luke chapter 6. But of course we see beyond that and we see God's saving grace. His common grace has sustained our lives. Even in our rebellion we enjoyed the sun and the rain. Even in those days we had no time for God. And so God's common grace sustains our life to the point that we come to know him in saving grace. It's all of God, all of grace, all of his kindness. And so the call from God's aseity is to worship him. It's a call to worship, to recognize, to give glory to our great God. There's also one other application. Our time is gone. I just want to mention to you. We must have a right view of our work for God. Again, note the text. Neither is worship with men's hands as though he needed anything the God that is pleased to use means is the God that is able to work without means and to work with means other than you it is a terrible thing I mean this sincerely when somebody in a missionary call comes to young people and says God needs you for the advance of the gospel I know what they mean by that. I understand the, the concept behind that. God uses means. But that language is not proper. God is pleased to use means. But our young people should not be guilted to mission work out of some sense that they are indispensable to God. No one is indispensable. God can take any of us at any moment. And his work will not suffer any harm. And so we do, we feel the loss of godly men. I said in our prayer meeting 
Uh, last night in, in Reformation Bible Church, we, we feel the concern regarding the future, the cares of the churches involved, or concern what's going to happen in future generations. Great men of God are retiring and they're, they're going to glory. What happens next? God's not troubled. God's not anxious or concerned with these things. God's got all things in control. He doesn't need anything. His work will go forward. But yes, at the same time, he's pleased to use the means. And so when we do serve God, it's out of his grace. The small things we do for God is because he has chosen to show his grace toward us and allow us to be part of the advance of the gospel. What a blessing. You know, you're, you're a mother in the home or you're in some other context and you're, you're sharing the word of God with your child and they come to faith in Christ. God didn't need you to do that. And so the fact that you have the joy of leading your child to Christ and to pray with them over the things of the gospel is part of God's kindness to you. Amen. Glorious kindness. This is our kind God, worthy of our praise and our worship. He does not need anything, but he's pleased to enter this creation and use us for the glory and honor of his name. So next time you think of God's society, make sure you get to the so what. Yes, George. Yeah, yeah. so when I'm, what I'm asserting God's asserting and not needing anything is God's sovereignty. You know, God, God rules and reigns over all things. He's independent of creation in that, in that sense, but not in any way wanting to undermine our responsibility. That's always the case. But when you come to subject, it may turn your mind towards one aspect of God's uh, character, and you emphasize God's, God's sovereignty, but yeah, please, thank you. It always reminds us that we're not you know, to be irresponsible or careless or lethargic or prayerless. All of those things are it's part of our duty before God to, to, to honor him in that way. Yeah, last comment. I just was thinking, I am what I am by the grace of God. Yeah. God put me here, yeah. in this church, in this area. I'm not called to be a missionary, but we are. Yeah. I mean, he did not the apostle Paul. And then how dare I not share Christ We are what we are by the grace of God. And that includes our giftedness as well. You know, the variety of giftedness in the church. And Dan, you have a gift towards bringing the gospel to other people and praise God for that. Others, again, have other gifts and they use those for the glory of God. And whatever God has done in our lives, including giftedness, is part of his work as well in our lives. And so we praise God for his mercy in our hearts. Well, let's pray. Let's seek God's face. Worship our Lord. And then again, we'll come in a few moments to worship him in public praise. Eternal God, we do come not in ignorance but in knowledge because you've given us your word to inform our minds and to instruct us as to who thou art and that thou art worthy of our praise and all of our adoration and worship. Thank you, dear Father, that you've placed a church here in your sovereign purpose and will. We are here, O God, because you want us to be here, to glorify your name in public worship and to be a light in this area for the glory of Christ. Help us, O God, we pray to glorify and magnify the Son. May our worship today be pleasing to thee. We thank you, Lord. You're the great God, worthy of praise. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.